0: This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm not her. <laughs> I'm Peter Guthrie. I'm uh, the chair of this event. I'm delighted to be the chair of this event. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. In a moment, I'm going to bring on a woman who I guess you don't really need to be introduced to. <laughs> Um, she's a wonderful international bestseller, her, her, the new TV series is a massive hit, you've not been, had a chance, none of us have had a chance to see it yet, it's a big success in the US and Australia. <laughs> oh, uh, okay, uh, the way this is going to go, we're going to have a chat for about half an hour, you're going to have a chance to ask questions for about half an hour, and then Diana's going to be signing copies of this book and many of the other, she's here primarily to talk about this, but we're going to go all over the place, uh, and then she'll be signing copies of the books in the bookshop. Please welcome Diana Gabaldoni. have you here. It's my
1: pleasure thank you.
0: Tell us without giving too much away about this book (laughs) which we've waited some years to -hmm. to receive. It's well worth the wait I hasten to Yes,
1: Well uh, you can see from the size of it that it does take a (laughs) while to write one of these Uh, in addition to the complexity of the plot and the storyline there's all the research that needs to be done for something that size and more important part of it is the uh, internal engineering As you can see, the books are very large. It does take me a while to write them. And consequently, when a new book comes out, people don't always realize that it is not a standalone book, but rather the eighth of a very long and large series. Consequently, I don't want people to be picking it up in the airport bookshop and saying, well, this will last me to Cleveland, only to be going, well, I have no idea what's going on here. (laughs) So um, they have to be readable on their own. They're, of course, much richer, as you all know, if you're able to read them as a as a continuing series. But each one of them is very carefully designed so that it can be read as a standalone book. And that, as I say, takes quite a bit of time as well. I should also note that uh, it uh, takes quite a bit of time uh, to come out and talk to people about books, which adds about another year to the the interval between them. As I say to people who say, well, have you started writing the ninth book? When is the ninth book coming out? The answer to that is, if I weren't here talking to you, I'd be home writing it. (laughs) But as it is, let us enjoy the afternoon and you will just have to wait a little longer. Uh, As to what this book is, it is, as Peter says, the eighth in the main uh, Outlander books. There is a uh, sort of a subset of books called The Lord John Gray Novels, which we may address later. So overall, I've written 14 books, all told. Uh, This one uh, takes up uh, the story in 1778 in the summertime, finding our characters more or less in Philadelphia and on the verge of the Battle of Monmouth. Uh, Their personal situation, however, pales, (laughs) or rather causes the Battle of Monmouth to pale. And we left them at the end of the last book, which ended on a brilliantly executed and conceived uh, triple cliffhanger. As in, yes, I did do it on purpose, (laughs) I did not, as some ill-natured souls suggested, merely walk away and leave the book. (laughs) No, I did it right where I meant it to. And uh, where I meant it to was with Jamie Fraser, who had been presumed drowned, suddenly returning from the dead, as it were, uh, to discover that his wife, Claire, had uh, married his best friend, John. He was uh, actually quite grateful to John for this. Uh, He had married her to keep her from being arrested as a rebel spy, which in fact she was. Um, And of course, uh, Jamie was not too disturbed at this, knowing quite well that uh, John is uh, homosexual, which was a capital offense in the 18th century and therefore kept very quiet. But uh, Jamie knows about this because John, in fact, uh, is in love with him and he knows that too, but both of them ignore it. (laughs) Uh, So much to his surprise, uh, he has come to reclaim his wife and thinking there's going to be no no problem about this, but he's spotted on his way there and is pursued by a gang, a patrol of redcoat soldiers who pursue him into Lord John's house uh, where he finds Claire and they have an ecstatic 30-second reunion and uh, then, you know, he has to leave (laughs) because he's being pursued. He bursts out into the hallway where Lord John has uh, appeared, looking quite surprised, as one might expect, and the next thing that happens is that the leader of the redcoat patrol comes rushing up the stairs, and uh, this leader proves to be Lieutenant Ransom, who is also the ninth Earl of Ellesmere, or so he thinks. Who he actually is is Jamie Fraser's illegitimate son. <laughs> A fact which becomes blindingly obvious to him when he comes nose to nose with his uh, Potter familias and notices just how familiar that familias is. <laughs> As if they strongly resemble each other. <laughs> and it's rather taken aback by this. Uh, and uh, so Lord John instantly takes, or uh, Jamie takes Lord John hostage in order to escape from the house. And they have Squatulate out the nearest window and down the rain pipe, and, and they're off. Well, as they're riding out of town, Lord John is, of course, in some turmoil of mind. He's really pleased to see Jamie back from the dead. At the same time, uh, in paroxysms of grief and a lot of plum brandy, he and Claire slept together at the end of the last book. And uh, so he's reasonably sure that Claire is going to tell Jamie this, and he thinks maybe he'd better get in first, uh, out of noble motives, of course. He says, if there's going to be violence done, it's better he do it to me. And uh, so as soon as they stop to water their horses, he blurts out, I have had carnal knowledge of your wife, which causes Jamie to look at him curiously and say, oh, why? <laughs> so that's where we left the last book. So this book takes up there. <laughs> I'm exhausted. And then we go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <then> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're a hearty lot. When
0: you, when you, when you ended the last book, indeed, when you end each book, mm-hmm. do you... Do you know where you're going to go with the next book, there? because you leave it? haven't a clue. Not a clue no. at all.
1: <laughs> no, unlike some other authors, I don't plan books out ahead of time, uh, nor do I write with an outline, nor even in a straight line. <laughs> 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 I write in little bits and pieces where I can see things happening. And uh, What I need on any given day to begin work is what I call a kernel, a vivid image, a line of dialogue, an emotional ambiance, anything I can sense concretely and I'll write that down in a sentence or two, and then I sit there and look at it. I take words out, and I put them back, and I divide the sentence in two, and I put in more clauses, and I switch it back. And while I'm looking around, you know, crafting this to be as euphonious and clear as possible, the back of my mind is kicking through the compost back there and you know, kicking up mushrooms and questions and saying, well, you know, what time of year is it? How is the light falling? You know, who am I looking at? You know, is the room cold, this sort of thing? And gradually, I begin to get a sense of where I am, who might be there with me, and then someone else will say something else. And uh, uh, I began to write the scene, and it flows very—it doesn't flow, it it moves stickily from one bit to another, but uh, i go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. The kernel is not usually what the scene is about, it's just my way of getting a foothold on the page. Sometimes it disappears entirely in the writing. But as we go along, uh, that scene begins to grow in both directions. So by the time I have finished that scene to my satisfaction, I will have been through it literally hundreds of times. I don't rough draft and then rewrite, I just fiddle a lot as I go. So when I have done it, it's as good as I can make it, and then I will put it aside and go and look for another kernel somewhere else. Well, as I work, gradually these bits and pieces begin to um, accumulate. I'll write something and think, oh, that explains why this happened four months ago. So I'll put that over here, no, over here. And uh, and then, oh, well, now I can see what has to fit in here. It's like playing Tetris in my head, but very slowly. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but how do you fit the research? Because you research superbly, mm-hmm, and obviously mm-hmm. these are very well-conceived books. Uh, but how do, you, how do you kind of, at what stage are you getting that in? Have you done it all and it's all in your head, or are you needing to pop away and just no, check the facts? Research.
1: Uh, no, uh, the research is done concurrently with the writing um, because as I'm working on a scene, for instance, I will decide that I have to know uh, which part of Philadelphia this took place in. Uh, am I near enough to smell the river, for instance, because I have uh, a very conscious river scent coming to me and I smell dead fish and mud and so forth. So I'm thinking, well, where am I? You know, it's got to be you know, somewhere, and uh, so I pull up my 18th century map of Philadelphia and see which street was nearest the river and what buildings were on it in the 18th century, and I say, well, they can't be here because it's just warehouses, so they must be up here, you know, by the um, the, the Anabaptist meeting house, all right, who would be in an Anabaptist meeting house other than Anabaptists, of whom I have none in the story, so maybe I should have one, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, things like that, you know, the, the research stimulates kernels for me, and again, the, uh, the scenes generate quite that are answered by research. So it's, uh, there are the broader overview topics of research. For instance, the Battle of Monmouth, once I knew I was dealing with that, I got a copy of the Osprey Publications Men at Arms series, which are just the best if you want uh, the order of battle and the details of the commanders and exactly what they were wearing at the time. It's very, very detailed, and it has maps and photographs and things like that. So if that's what you're after, that's the best uh, best source. Yeah. And
0: in terms of all the characters you've got, have you got do you keep mm. charts and things and little timelines? and?
1: I don't, yeah. No, I uh, don't keep charts timelines or index cards. Uh, everything is it's in my in, is in my head, yeah. Wow. Uh, no, I, have <laughs> I am compiling the second volume of The Outlandish Companion, mm. which uh, with luck you'll get early in 2015 because it's almost done. But for that, uh, the first companion had, and this one will have as well, uh, a, a complete compilated, uh, compiled I suppose, is the uh, cast of characters. Okay, now the first Outlandish Companion had over 500 characters. That covered the first four books. I think we have up to about 1,500 now because the second four books are longer. So, so that will take up a small chunk of the, of the book. And you um, don't
0: secretly refer to that?
1: No, I don't, yeah. <laughs> now, if I don't remember something, then it's not worth having the new book. That's <laughs> interesting.
0: Yeah. And I don't want you to give away the ending, but am I assuming that at the end of this book there are certain cliffhangers again which will oh. carry us through to the next one?
1: Actually, not. Uh, let's see. This is not the last book. There is a book nine, as I said, uh, but it doesn't end on a cliffhanger. I mean, there are a number of people who have called the ending a cliffhanger, but it's not. <laughs> uh, as in, you, you know exactly what happened, you just don't know how it happened, and that you may get explained in the next book. But, uh, but no, it comes to a very satisfying conclusion. I haven't had any death threats at all on this one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Did you really have death threats? I know you had people
1: yeah, once in a with earlier books, which were. <laughs> well, it was confused. mostly with the second book, Dragonfly. Yeah, the start of the second book. At the end of that one. <laughs> yeah. And that
0: was obviously you knew that would cause a shock. At oh, the start yes, of the second.
1: Uh-huh. oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I usually know what will cause a shock. My husband is the only person who reads what I'm writing while I'm writing it. Uh, When I finished a scene, you know, to my satisfaction, I'll leave it on his sink at night. He gets up very early and I stay up very late, so uh, I'll leave it for him and he'll take it off and read it over his coffee and come back and tell me what he thinks of it at lunch, often with uh, entertaining marginal notes. Yes, his best marginal note was nipples again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but every once in a while, I will give him a scene you know, from a recent book and so forth. He'll read it, and it will come out with the marginal note that says, Oh, they're going to scream. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But as we speak, the, the, the Outlander TV series is in production
1: here. It is, here. Cumbernauld, yeah, just uh, just outside Glasgow.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you went to a, a table reading, did you say? Which I did, this kind of yeah, yeah.
1: This morning I was in Cumbernauld at what they call a table read, which is where we have a lot of tables in a square, and uh, the cast of the various episodes sitting around them, they usually read two episodes at a time because that's what's in what they call a filming block. And so this morning we had the cast for episodes 15 and 16, which are the last two episodes from season one. And I was very eager to see what happened in this particular row table read, not only because it's a lot of fun you know, to hear the people read it. Some of them act and some of them just read. You know, it's, it's, it's just so that the producers and writers can see what the flow is and you know, they'll be making notes, You know, like, oh, I've just seen this, oh no, you can't do that. Uh, this person tripped over that line three times in a row, maybe I better take it out. That sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, but also because I actually had something to do with, the, with these particular scripts. Uh, it's very important being the last part of the book and uh, they're the parts that deal with Wentworth Prison and what happened there. And, you know, in the book, you don't actually... (laughs) Steady, steady.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well,
1: in Outlander, you know, beyond the first, you know, nailing the hand to the table, you don't actually see what happens there. It's all told to you just in very short snapshots uh, as Jamie tells it to Claire, and it's very synoptic. Uh, we leave most of it to your imagination because, frankly, the reader's imagination is much more powerful than anything anyone can write. So all you want to do is peek it a little and then you know stand back. But uh, but you can't do that on television, or not to such a large degree. You do actually have to show things. And uh, as my husband said to me when I was writing Outlander, I was explaining this bit to him. I hadn't written it yet. And I said, you know, but it's all right. I'm not going to show most of that. uh, So we don't need to go into gross detail about what happened in uh, in that room. He looked at me, very seriously, he knows me, and he says, but you had to know what everything that happened in that room, didn't you? <laughs> and I said, well, that's right, I do, yeah, and uh, I do. So I told them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they were they were shocked. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Actually, one of the writers of this episode after we'd read through it and so far, I told him, you know, good job, I, I like what you've done here. I, we had been consulting with them for a month or more on these things. And uh, anyway, he had done something uh, Rather nasty to a servant, and he said, "Well, since you are Black Jack Randall, you know, tell me would would uh, uh, Randall have been nicer to this person, you know?" And I said, "No, he wouldn't." I said, "This man's a tool, you know. Once he served his purpose." <laughs> he rather looked at me, and I said, "You know, if I had not been born with a conscience and a sense of empathy, I'd be a very dangerous person." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think I believe you. (laughs) Oh, you ought. (laughs) So how does it feel after all these years for for Outlander to to be on the telly? It's been a long time coming, I guess. Oh, it has, yeah. I presume it was optioned quite quickly for film, maybe?
1: (laughs) Yes, it was, yeah. Well, I should explain how options work. Film Options, a production company, will come and offer you a modest amount of money. (laughs) For an option. And what that is essentially is just a period of time. It's a year, two years, five years, whatever you agree on, during which they have the exclusive right to uh, try to put together the funding and the casting and so forth in order to make a motion picture, or in this case a TV show. If they can accomplish that, and it's much harder than it sounds to put together 60 million dollars to make a movie, uh, then they, uh, by the terms of the contract, uh, they will then buy the film rights for a somewhat larger sum. And after that, they own them forever in perpetuity throughout the universe. This is actually what it says in their language. First time I saw a film contract, I said to my agent, they're joking, aren't they? And he said, oh no, (laughs) (laughs) they mean it. So you want to be very careful who you do options with because while the odds are 999 to one against them uh, putting together a deal, it does happen. So you want to be dealing with people who you more or less trust to be able to do something with your work insofar so far as it is possible to use the word trust in the same sentence with filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> as in not often, yeah. So uh, consequently, we have only optioned the rights to the books uh, four times since the first was published in 1991.
0: But did you ever believe that it was actually filmable without losing so much it was not Actually really no,
1: having seen several attempts. I mean I've seen scripts written by people who were trying to make a two-hour movie of it. And uh, as I told Ron Moore when he showed me his pilot script for the first episode, I said this is the first thing based on my work that I've ever seen that didn't make me either turn white or burst into flame. <laughs> 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 and, uh, I mean it is dead flat impossible to make a 2 hour movie out of that book and have it resemble the original story in any way
0: So what stage did TV come into the picture which made oh, it a much well, more likely
1: mm-hmm. thing Well this is a rather long story maybe somewhat boring but essentially the fourth option holder who also wanted to make a uh, a 2 hour film, and had engaged several very reputable screenwriters whose names you would recognize if I were indiscreet enough to speak them aloud, um, but reinforced my opinion that it's sit flat impossible. Anyway, he uh, was a very stubborn man, and he kept renewing the option. Well, while he was doing this, Ron D. Moore, who is uh, uh, He's been a television showrunner for a long time. Mm. He did all of Battlestar Galactica and his new invention. He worked on Star Trek and Star Trek: New Generations earlier. Uh, very good storyteller, very, uh, very talented. But television is his you. And uh, after finishing Battlestar Galactica, he told me, he was having dinner with his wife and his production partner and talking over possible future projects. And one of them said, well, you know, there's this book called Outlander, which is really great. And the other woman piped up and said, Outlander, you read Outlander. And they started doing what Outlander fans do when they meet each other. <laughs> 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 And as Ron said, I was just sitting there drinking my martini and going like this. <laughs> and uh, finally, he said, well, does one of you have a copy of this book? And they both reached in their bags and pulled one out. So he took it home and read it all in one night. And he said, yeah, this is great. He said, this is a wonderful story. It's got, you know, everything I like, you know, in terms of story. And uh, I I can see how to make a TV show out of this. So he went to find out who had the rights and it was uh, Jim Kohlberg, our option holder. Well, Jim said, uh, no, I don't want to do television. I want to make a two hour film. And so Ron said, well, we'll check back with you. So once a year for the next three or four years, uh, his partner would call up Jim and say, well, how's that future film working out for you, Jim? And he kept saying, oh, it's coming. And then finally, on the last try, he said, well, I begin to think you may be right. It might be a television show. (laughs) So at this point, uh, Ron took it to the Sony Corporation where he had a a production deal in place, meaning that they uh, had agreed to let him produce a television show of his own choosing, provided they approved of it. And uh, so he took it to them, they approved of it, and the result was this really odd pentangular contract between Sony, uh, Ron, Jim, me, and Stars, which is another American corporation and I should explain here how this works. STARS is the production company, meaning that it is their job actually to make the show, which they're doing in Scotland, but they are an American company. Therefore, they have only the American rights to show that. They can only show it in the U- US. All the other rights belong to the Sony Corporation, which then makes individual licensing deals with different countries. And so far, they've made deals with at least 15 different countries, You know, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, uh, the Middle East, uh, all of Scandinavia, and a number that I don't remember. Uh, oh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, those kinds. Uh, but not. not but with not. the UK, no.
0: <laughs> not Scotland or England or Great Britain.
1: Yeah, I think at the moment, at least, it would still be the UK. Oh, uh, you know, after...
0: just <laughs> 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 <Yes>, careful, there. <laughs> yes, we'll have
1: to see. Yeah, well, you know, there's a, a lot of talk and speculation as to why the show has not been sold to the UK as yet, and it's certainly not that Sony doesn't want to sell it to them because, you know, why would they not want to sell it to everybody? And um, they are, in fact, negotiating with uh, one or more UK TV suppliers. Now, why that deal has not come to conclusion, I don't know. They've been at it for three months at least. But you know, there's public talk and rumor and speculations. There is absolutely no evidence on which to speculate. The most common rumor is that oh, they're holding off till after the Scottish referendum. Okay, but uh, as far as I know, there's no evidence whatever to suggest that that's true. But uh, that's the, uh, the most common rumor take that for what it's worth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the first series is, six, is 16 episodes. It
1: is, yeah, amazing.
0: I, I read that after the first pilot episode, which came out a week or so ago, two mm-hmm. weeks ago, uh, that they immediately commissioned the second series, they which did, seems yeah. to me unheard of
1: after well, a pilot. Um, well, it, it's quite rare, I expect. But the first episode, uh, which was shown in the U.S. on the 9th of August... Uh, Don't rub it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't get it till the end of September anyway. Uh, but, uh, no, the first episode in the U.S. had 5 million viewers. Uh, Game of Thrones had half a million. <laughs> Thank you course, first episode, I should say, Game of Thrones is now quite a bit <laughs> higher than that. But we have heights to aim for. Yeah, and in fact, Ron told me today at the table read that uh, episode two, which aired on uh, Saturday night, uh, had a 25 percent increase in uh, in viewership. And, uh, thank you. So that may have, uh, you know, uh, stimulated stars to. And you're presumably
0: hoping that every, each series, assuming there are enough, mm-hmm. will take a book.
1: Roughly speaking, yeah, I don't know what we'll do when we hit the third book, which is noticeably longer and has a more convoluted plot, but as Ron said, in respect to that question, he said, I should have such problems, so, <laughs> so we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. It's possible that they would, at that point, begin uh, you know, letting part of a book lap over into the next series and combine it with part of the sequential book, and at that point, not be doing the, the one-to-one uh, congruence of season to book.
0: And and has Lord John been optioned as well, or will that get too confusing, the Lord John novels?
1: (laughs) Lord John is a slightly murky proposition, and no one's been touching it as yet in terms of film. Uh, I would love to see it as a television drama. It's it's got the same sorts of plot lines that lend themselves to a TV adaptation. It's got that sort of character and all that. Uh, The murkiness comes in with character, as in the Sony Corporation at this moment owns uh, my characters insofar as their filmic representation may be okay, how far does my characters go? Because while the contract is only for the books of the Outlander series, and it's predicated on my writing further books as well, it doesn't mention any of the Lord John Gray books. At the same time, uh, there are inarguably characters from the main books who appear in the Lord John Gray books. So, uh, you'd have to have, have some sort of contractual arrangement <laughs> for doing that if and when. But nobody's crossing that bridge yet.
0: Yeah. I assume you're pleased with the actors. They were relatively unknown. Oh, I, yes. So, no, I'm that, thrilled with that. And you actors. preferred the fact that they were relatively unknown. Oh, yes.
1: Unknown. And I was relieved that they were unknown because, you know, well known actors come with baggage. I had a lot of people saying, oh, I want Chris Hemsworth to be Thor. And I said, well, you know, putting aside the nose, which isn't Jamie Fraser at all. I said, um, <laughs> I said, you know, no one would ever be able to look at him without thinking Thor, you know, and wanting to. And besides, he's an Australian. He can't do a Scottish accent to save his life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I wanted a Scottish actor, if humanly possible, and luckily it was. <laughs> I found Sam Ewan, who is, uh, he was born in Dumfries, New Galloway. And uh, yeah, (laughs) I'm going down to do a signing in Wigtown uh, on Wednesday. And as uh, I told him that, he said, "Oh, that's where I was born." (laughs) Be very nice. Yeah, no, the. one of the uh, production assistants likes to wind him up by saying, well, you're not a real Scot. you (laughs) come out from down there, you know, she's a Highlander.
0: (laughs) You're losing the few in the audience now, (laughs) you'd be aware of that. (laughs) These
1: are not my words. (laughs) No, he sounds pretty Scottish to me.
0: (laughs) Are you involved in the scripting at all, or have you chosen not to be?
1: No, I am, actually. Uh, By the contract, I am a consultant, but that's a, a word that can mean anything or nothing. If they think you're a nuisance, it will mean Nothing, <laughs> but uh, they'll pay you. But they don't want you anywhere near the production, uh, as it is. I know how not to be a nuisance, and uh, so uh, I was. Uh, they show me scripts, and they show me footage, uh, you know, the daily footage, and they show me the uh, the episodes as they're put together, roughly edited, and uh, you know, and I'm welcome to make comments. So I'm very diplomatic about how I offer my comments, or I have been up until this point, point. and uh, you know, I usually will only say something if I think. It's really wrong or there's a historical problem. There was one script in which they had Claire uh, wandering away from the rent party and uh, falling in with a, a group of Scottish housewives and one of them had seen her eyeing a vase in the window. Mind you, this is remote island village in the 18th century and I'm saying face in the window, yeah, just vaguely possible. Probably her son brought it back from Africa. And, uh, and, but uh, the housewife invites her in and uh, we find her playing cards with the ladies over tea. I'm thinking remote Highland village, 18th century. Let's see, tea, no, cards, no. (laughs) And so I I said as much. And I said, you know, it's all right to ever fall in with the women and so forth, but what they would really be doing is chores. Everybody worked on to dusk on a Highland farm, they would be milking the goats or better yet, walking wool, which is where you lay out the freshly woven wool, you souse it with boiling hot urine, and then you mash it back and forth with your hands. As being rather tedious. They tended to do it in groups with several women on each side of a table, and they sang walking songs to pass the time while they did this. And uh, so the uh, producers very obligingly went to the Aviemore Folk, uh, Highland Folklore Museum and uh, got a number of people who could actually sing walking songs, and uh, they filmed uh, Clara doing just that. <laughs> so I was very pleased.
0: <laughs> Can I switch, then, and take you right you back may. to your childhood? Were you, were you always writing as a child? Was it always an ambition of yours?
1: Well, I've known since I was about eight years old that I was meant to be a writer, to write novels. I didn't write down anything when I was young, but I told stories all the time with my younger sister, we Shared a bedroom until I was 14. And we would tell these long, convoluted stories, you know, late into night, uh, taking several roles each. And, you know, I, I knew that I could, you know, kind of see the other side as it was. So, you know, things would just come to me. Uh, but I had no idea how to actually write a book. I just knew that I was meant to do that.
0: And were uh, books part—I mean, your dad was a state senator I think, for he a was. long my time. was. My dad was a politician. Were, were, were books in, in your family a lot?
1: Yes, they were. Yeah, it was a very bookish family. Yeah, almost on my mother's side. Though my dad did read. He read mostly, you know, political biographies and and uh, magazines and newspapers. But yeah, the house was full of books. But my dad was very conservative. He would uh, say to me, even I was young, "You're such a poor judge of character. You're bound to marry some bum," he said. So, um, be sure you get a good education so you can support your family.
0: <laughs> which you then did. You, you, which you, I then did. You yeah, did I zoology, did and you did a whole range yeah. of things, and then yeah. you were I, a professor.
1: Yeah, I well, was. So I went into science. I have a PhD in quantitative behavioural ecology, which is just animal behaviour with statistics. Don't worry about it. I'm glad you said <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and were you writing then, or again? It was just in your head, or no, it wasn't even uh, there head? were
1: just bits and pieces in my head. I had no coherent vision of a book or even a particular story. I just knew I was meant to be a novelist. Well, when I was 35, I thought, to myself, you know, Mozart was dead at 36, maybe you'd better get to move on just in case. And so I said, fine, on my next birthday, I'm going to begin writing a novel just to find out how, because to this point, I had written all kinds of everything, anything anyone would pay me for, because, well, I did not marry a bum. I married a very nice man, whom I still have 42 years later, but uh, he quit work three months after our first child was born in order to start his own business. And I do have to say that in terms of financial stability, there's not that much to choose between an entrepreneur and a bum. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, was our sole support for several years, and they don't uh, pay assistant professors all that much. So I uh, was looking for ways and means of earning extra money without taking up prostitution in the home. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I tell young writers at writer's workshops, I say, you know what the world's oldest profession is. Well, we have the world's second oldest profession. (laughs) (laughs) I said, now we have it all over the world's oldest profession in that if you're a writer, you can do it to a lot of people at once.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were right. This, oh, this is a, a good segue. Well, you were writing comics at the time, weren't you? which doesn't really link with prostitution, yeah. but when they, for Walt Disney, what kind of, <laughs> what kind of comics were they?
1: Uh, Walt Disney uh, wrote for, uh, for them for about three years. I uh, wrote... Uh, Mickey Mouse, and Donald Duck, and Uncle Scrooge, and uh, Three Little Pigs and the Big Bad Wolf, though those tended to be rather formulaic.
0: How did you get that? Was that because of zoology? No, surely not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it comes from the bookish family. My mother taught me to read when I was about three, in part by reading me Walt Disney comic books, and I never stopped. So I was 27 and reading one I'd picked up at the convenience store, and I said, well, this is pretty bad. I bet I could do better myself. So I found out the name and address of the editor who did that line of comics, and I wrote him this very rude letter saying, "Uh, dear sir, I've been reading your comics for 25 years. They've been getting worse and worse. I said, "Uh, I'm not sure I could do better myself, but I'd like to try. Well, luckily, I'd hit to Del Connell, a with a sense of humor, and he wrote back and said, "Okay, try." And he showed me the format, you know, how to how to lay out a script in panel form and all that. So I wrote him a story. He didn't buy it, but he did something much more valuable. He told me what was wrong with it. He did buy my second story, and as I say, I continued to write for Disney, both the domestic and the foreign program, for about three years. At this point, the powers that be at Disney said, we had 40 years of Karl Bark scripts in our files, why are we buying new ones? So <laughs> they stopped buying new ones. Oh, really? That was the end of my comic but career. Was that
0: really useful for you in terms of structuring books, or not at all? Was it a different um, discipline? It's,
1: it's really quite different. Now, where it was valuable was in terms of evaluating scripts, in that a uh, script moves in visual imagery. In a book, uh, you have much more control over your pacing because you can do internal monologue, you can describe things at length or briefly, you can uh, summarize things in a half sentence or whatever you like. You actually control the, uh, the reader's pace. Uh, even those of you who are in kind of skip—you don't know it—but you're being controlled. Yeah. So, uh, and in fact, my son is a novelist himself. He uh, writes uh, epic science fiction. His name is Sam Sykes. For anyone who wants to look him up, you co written a story with me yeah, as well. Yeah, but I told him—you know—as uh, as we, we like to discuss writing periodically—he's uh, never read my books because, as my eldest daughter said, I don't want to read sex scenes written by my mother. <laughs> <laughs> No, mind you, uh, when we premiered the uh, show, the first episode uh, had its premiere at the San Diego Comic Con, where Sam was uh, in his own right as a, as a novelist, and our, my eldest daughter and her husband came down also for the premiere as part of their you know, wedding anniversary weekend. So Sam and Laura were sitting next to me uh, <laughs> watching this show. We had these two enormous bodyguards with the group. I mean, they were, no kidding, seven foot two and seven foot three and about 400 pounds each. They were just immense. So I'm sitting next to Sam who's telling me something f- funny that had happened at the show. Sam himself is six five and, and no shrinking violet, but anyway, he was making his characteristic faces and gesturing wildly, it runs in the family. And uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the bodyguards was instantly at my shoulder and he bent down and said, now if you feel threatened at any moment, ma'am, just raise your hand. <laughs> I said, no, no, it's all right, I know who it is. (laughs) But anyway, after the episode, you know, both the the kids uh, tweeted me and said, oh, great show, Mom. Which Sam had another run, and he said, watching sex scenes written by your mother? Awkward. Though so I pointed out to him, I didn't actually write those. <laughs> you know, it's not that they weren't in the book, I just didn't write them. <laughs>
0: I mean, it is fairly close to the, the book, isn't it? If it does, yes. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a wonderful adaptation. Yeah. You know, the thing is that a book has its own internal structure, and uh, television has its internal structure. It has to be divisible into episodes, each of which has its own satisfying dramatic arc. So you get all these little arcs which build up into the whole story, whereas in a book you can just take off and go like this and like this. So consequently, they have had to Move some of the um, scenes out of their original sequence and move them into another place where they can support the dramatic arc of that episode. And of course, when you start moving things around, it introduces, you know, sort of Rubik's Cube complexity. And so then they will add another little emendation or loop, which was not in the books, but is entirely congruent with what's in the books. As Ron said, it's something that could have been in the books, or it's something that obviously was in the books, but it wasn't on the page, that sort of thing. And so, you know, the feeling is not one of dislocation, but it does give you this uh, delightful feeling. Of seeing the original story but not knowing what's going to happen next so I would watch them with great (laughs) anticipation when they put an episode together and I'm thinking wow (laughs) yeah this is very cool so it's it's a great discovery for me as well
0: yeah Mm -hmm. I've got loads more questions but you've been very patient with me and Mm -hmm. I think it's only fair to let the audience get some questions in so thank you Mm -hmm. for that let's get some Mm -hmm. questions from the audience second row here. wait for the microphone I'll try and reach all of you if I can Mm -hmm. if someone could put a microphone in that lady with the red jumper there for the next question and uh, keep them succinct, if you would.
1: I'm sadly, Tom Burke has disappeared from the series at the moment. Mm-hmm. I know you don't plan your characters, but does he do something like become a butler or similar? Actually, if you read that book, you'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Who's <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah? yeah? So, one of the things with your books is that you've got kind of a lot of limitations with creating oh. your own world and your own. Mm-hmm timelines and everything um have there ever been limitations that you wrote in in the earlier books that you felt constrained by later and how did you handle that oh not really i was actually having breakfast with george r r martin at one point a couple of years ago and talking about you know current things and he was saying he was somewhat stuck with where he was because he'd done something in an earlier book he'd you know killed someone he didn't really want dead or that he could use now but he didn't know how to get himself out of this corner I said, well, it's easy, George, you know, just back out and come in with a different character, you know. It's, it's, I mean, no, I've never found it uh, a, limit, a limitation, really. It's just a challenge, you know, how are you going to get out of this one? <laughs> and, in fact, often I will create situations that appear to have no way out just to see what, what can be done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Uh, there?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. You chose to focus on the Quaker connection. In this book, yeah. As opposed to the Anabaptist or something like There's that. not well, many Anabaptists left, whereas there are still a few Quakers okay. around. Was that a conscious decision that this, this was a group of people you wanted to bring your focus to? Well, it was partly a function of place in that the story was set in Philadelphia and the Quakers were a very important force in Philadelphia in the 18th century and in the American Revolution. And this is the other thing. Uh, while the books are superficially you know, very adventurous and you know, genre-bending and, and will keep people reading, certainly, there are actually deeper themes going on in them. And one of those is the nature of war. And uh, what better to be the backdrop for a nat- the controversy on the nature of war than to have important characters who are Quakers
0: Thank you. Gentleman there. Thank you. Uh, Diana, I'm a mere novice uh, regarding your books. I'm only on the second one. Hey, take your time. So I'm
1: not fast. <laughs> how,
0: <laughs> how do you feel now that your series of books and this uh, television series, uh, the impact
1: it's had on, it's going to have on <coughs> Scottish tourism? Oh, I'm really pleased about that. You know, I'm uh, extremely fond of Scotland. And I'm uh, really, really happy that other people are now able to share it with me. And uh, I'm sure there's much more to it than just my books, but, uh, but I'm happy uh, about that. In fact, I'm having dinner with the Visit Scotland people tonight. <laughs> 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 yes, and, uh, okay,
0: there's somebody there, the there but can we, someone over here want to question as well, so I can get that microphone up there. Who's got the no? microphone No, okay, right okay, we'll right. stay with you, and then we'll <laughs> okay, go up to the yeah, back.
1: Okay, Diana, why do I have Cross Stitch and you have Outlander? <laughs> ah. Well, because uh, Cross Stitch was the working title for that book when I was writing it. It's not a particularly good title, it's just what I called the manuscript, which I was never planning to show anyone or try to get published. But you know, things happened, and uh, we did get published, but in the U.S. And they said, well, Cross Stitch sounds rather like embroidery, can you think of something more more adventuresome? And so eventually I thought of Outlander, and they liked that. I wanted to call it Sassenach, and they said, no one can pronounce your name, and if we have a title they can't pronounce either, <laughs> so, uh, so Outlander it was. And uh, then six months later, we sold it to the UK. And they said, well, we love the book, but we can't call it Outlander, because to us, an outlander is someone from South Africa. And um, uh, can you think of anything else? I said, well, originally I called it Cross Stitch. They said, oh, lovely. And so it was Cross Stitch. Uh, Well, I have had not a few letters over the years from UK readers saying, there's this funny story about how I found your first book. I was browsing in the uh, handicraft section of my bookstore.
0: Well, this, this is called Moby as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, that's uh, my shorthand. It's a very long title written in my own heart's blood. You know, an echo in the bone, you can shorten to echo, but you can't go around calling a book written. It doesn't flow. Um, so, anyway, it's an abbreviation of my own heart's blood M O H B Moby. Moby. Also, it's big and white. That's
0: true. Lady over there, take that microphone there and then over there.
1: You've mentioned George R R. Martin. Was he able to give you any advice when you were. Optioning um, Outlander to TV, or shared any experiences with Game of Thrones? And oh, was uh, was George able to offer any helpful advice when optioning? Uh uh, the show? Actually, no. Uh, I had been optioning my books actually before he began writing his. Uh, so I, I know a bit about it. Uh, we do talk about the television production since he's now got one and so have I. and So we are actually the only people in this particular position at the moment, I think, since Charlene Harris has completed her series and moved out. There's probably a few others in production. But uh, yeah, you know, just uh, just a little, well actually he said how many episodes are you getting? And I said 16. To which he replied, what? They only give me <laughs> 10. is that kind Thing, yeah.
0: but, but he lives in Santa Fe, and you—you got a house in Santa Fe. Is, there, yeah, something, is yeah. there something in the water there, or anything that you know? Oh,
1: uh, there's a lot of writers who who live in Santa Fe. It's yeah. a very quiet, laid back sort of town. It, it aids contemplation. Yeah, but uh, George has lived there for a long time, 25 years I think. My husband and I have a small place in Santa Fe because we found ourselves visiting there three or four times a year to go to the opera or art galleries and finally we said, well, why don't we just buy a small place, you know, and not have to pay hotel bills. So, uh, to get the most of it, we uh, live there for a week out of every month, but it tends to be a different week every month.
0: (laughs) Right, there's somebody there, yeah. yeah?
1: Hello. Hello, Diana. At which point
0: did you know how long the books were going to be, as in the number of books? When you started off, did you always plan it would be eight, nine books, or no, did you think maybe. one or two and it just carried on? Or?
1: No, as I said in the beginning, I don't plan books out and I don't outline them either. I uh, wait for the book to show me the shape of it. I think in geometric shapes and as I put together the, uh, the pieces of a book, it will assume a specific shape for me. And uh, In fact, if any of you, well actually wouldn't because it's the UK, there's a, a 20th anniversary Outlander which has an essay in the back called The Shape of Things which discusses the shapes of all the books. But I will put that in the new Outlandish Companion as well. But uh, yeah, no. I, the, the overall series has a shape to it as well, which is gradually filling in. And when that shape is complete, then the story will be done, but I'll have to wait for the books to tell me that. Yeah.
0: Okay, there's somebody up there, and then take that microphone down there, and then we'll come to you. So.
1: Hi, did you have a say in the actors who've been chosen to play Claire and Jamie in the television series? Are you happy with who is actually playing them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually can't see you. So she's, I'm she's
0: right at the back there. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, there you are. Right, did, you, did you have a say in the casting? Yes. Uh, are you not a say as such, uh, or I mean, not a legal say, but Ron and his partner Merrill have been very kind about including me in the, uh, the, this, the production details. And so they uh, sent me the audition tapes, both for Sam Hewen and for Katrina Balfe and they actually called me to tell me they'd found Jamie right away. He was the first person they cast, and everyone was terribly surprised because they were thinking, he'll be just impossible to cast, you know, we'll never find him, and it will be the UPS man in the end. But uh, <laughs> So I was amazed myself, and they called me not a week later to say, we've found Jamie, and I said, are you sure? They said, oh, yes, so, you know, we, we, we just looked at him and said, yeah, there he is, that's him, and so we're sending you the audition tapes. And I said, well, great, you know, I'm in Flagstaff, Arizona, on my way to Santa Fe. I can't look at it till tonight, but, you know, what's his name? So they told me, and I began, Googling him as we were driving along. Well, I got his IMDB page, the International Movie Database, and it had you know still photos from some of his earlier work. Well, now, Sam's a very chameleonic actor. He looks totally different in every role I've ever seen him in. And uh, none of his photos actually do him justice, as in he doesn't really look like them. So I was looking at him and thinking, this man is grotesque, what are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> but uh, we got to there and I keyed up my uh, computer and I was looking through my fingers because I wasn't expecting much. Uh, five seconds in, I said, well, he looks great. He doesn't look anything like his photos. Five seconds more, he was gone and it was just Jamie Fraser right there. I've never been so astonished. It was just great, yeah. And you know, very much the same with Katrina. They had flown Sam out to test with uh, in an endless stream of British actors or actresses, and uh, as uh, they all said, you know, these are wonderful actresses, but they just don't have that, that Claire thing about them, and Katrina did, and you know, it was the same, they just, there she is, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so we got very, very lucky with the casting, but in fact, all of the casting has been just spot on, yeah.
0: Right, okay, so we'll Yeah. Diana,
1: my, my put, friend Put the microphone
0: near your
1: Diana, it. my friend and I have travelled up from Dumfries today, we actually yeah. live in Dumfries and Galloway, we are New Galloway, is just along the road from us. Very good. And I wonder if you have any Scottish ancestry that you write so well about your characters from Scotland. Ah. uh, No, I have not, unfortunately. Um, But I appreciate the compliment. A woman at the dinner last night, who was quite intoxicated at the time, so in Vino Veritas, (laughs) um, sat down next to me and she said, you know, you've got the true Scottishness in you. She said, I have no idea how you came by it, but you've got it. No, when I uh, decided on a whim to set the books in Scotland, I immediately began researching Scotland. Uh, And then amongst the factual stuff, what I did was to find anything I could that was written by a Scot, because that's how you pick up not only the language, but the mode of thought. And I listened to all of the folklore, and the ballads, and uh, the songs, and so forth, because that's how you find out what's important to people.
0: Okay, lady over there. Yep. Yep.
1: Mm -hmm. Hello, Diana. Welcome to Edinburgh. Thank you. It's lovely to be in the same room as you. Thank you. um, Not a question but just a word of appreciation because at school I absolutely hated history. I I wasn't interested in battles and fighting and all the dates you had to learn but single-handedly you have made me understand Scottish history
0: and thank you so much.
1: (laughs) I'm very pleased to hear that. Thank you very somebody much.
0: The back there. Yeah. Can you put your hand up again over there? The person who put the hands up earlier, they were waving? Oh, they've changed their minds. Oh. OK. Yeah. So the person at the back there, and then there's a lady in black over there, and then there's that lady there, and there was somebody <laughs> else just at <in> the back there. <laughs> <going. Okay>.
1: So <laughs> right. lady at so the back there. Up at the back, which is very convenient, yeah? If Without fucal. wishing to issue any death threats, I do struggle with the multiple strands in the liter books. Um, you could have made the Bree and Roger 20th century story stand alone, and you obviously had reasons not to. Mm-hmm. Um, help me out here, <laughs> Well, uh, it is segregated. There's five sections of that book. Uh, well, actually, the middle one has three sections in it. But Actually, there's nine altogether. But um, yeah. anyway, two of them are Brianna and Roger's sections. They're segregated by themselves, so, so you know, if you only want to read that story, only read those two sections. You know, it's, if you have trouble you know, switching from one frame of reference to another, which is understandable. It's not that hard to you know, just follow one character throughout if you like, flip the pages till you see his name, <laughs> and carry on. Yeah. But, um, but yes, I have uh, very sound structural reasons for doing that.
0: If you, the lady at the back, and if you can get that to that lady with the glasses and the black top. Just seat your hand up again, if you would. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, there you go. Lady at the back.
1: I'm making my first trip here from America, Lovely. and just happened to come upon you today. And I've been a fan for 20 years. Wonderful. And um, I was wondering how much traveling you've done through Scotland since writing the books. Uh, any amount. I wrote the first book entirely from library research because I was uh, not intending to publish it or show it to anyone, including my husband, so I couldn't very well announce that I had to go and do research in Scotland for several months and abandon him with three small children. Um, so. Uh, that book, as I say, got published through a series of events that I won't go into here. But uh, they did give me a three-book contract. And so I said to my husband, well, I think I really must go and see Scotland. So we did. Uh, we rented a car and drove up uh, up the coast from London and uh, spent two weeks roaming around the highlands looking at everything and acquiring all the books I could afford or get my hands on on the way. So, yeah, it was great. And I've been back at every opportunity since. This is probably my 23rd, 24th trip today.
0: Mm-hmm. That lady there and then take the microphone to to Rose back. Lady there.
1: Mm-hmm. Hi Diana. Hi. I wondered the books are very um, the principal characters in the books are very physical, you know, like sort of both sexually and you know, like if sort of, you know, and, and, and just physically active. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you feel you're going to deal with them aging even further than they are already? Because obviously they live in historical time mm-hmm. which is fairly perilous and they mm-hmm. like sort of, you know, and they also live in real time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. You know. Yeah, well, it was uh, rather perilous in the 18th century, but the chief risk was of disease. Uh, I mean, uh, Jamie has reached the age at which he really can't be compelled to serve in the army anymore, so war is probably not going to get him if he's careful, which he isn't, but... uh, (laughs) And he has Claire, you know, who is reasonably good about disease and things like that. In fact, a great number of people did live into their 80s and 90s in the uh, 18th century. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and uh, John Adams all lived to the age of 84 and were in you know, reasonably good shape when they did so. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not going to worry about it until we get there is <laughs> the answer.
0: This lady here, and I hope that, if you can tell, I just two rows back. Oh, Yo, you've got it, yeah. This yeah. lady here.
1: Um, hi, I was just wondering if we can expect any more short stories, because there's been a few that are associated with the series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. part of the yeah. yeah, no, my husband calls those novellas and things, pilot fish, because they sort of swim <laughs> around amongst the, the larger stories and support bits and pieces. Yeah, I'm sure there will be more of those, since so now I've kind of got the knack of writing something less than 300,000 words. Yeah, your short
0: stories aren't really short, are they? they didn't, ah, your no. first, didn't your first <laughs> no, no, Lord John not. novel...
1: Yeah, well, the first Lord John novel was written as a short story, you know, private matter. Uh, I'd written an actual short story of 15,000 words for an anthology of historical crime. And, you know, that went well, and people said, oh, this is great, you know, can you write another one? And I said, yeah, why not? And uh, so, in the interstices of, of two novels, I began writing the second Lord John story. I was picking away at it with one hand and picking up the threads of my novel with the other. So, anyway, I was going along. Six months later, I stopped in New York to have lunch with my two agents on my way to the UK. And they said, what are you working on? And I said, oh, I've just about finished the second Lord John story. And they said, that's great. How long is this one? And I said, well, I knew you'd ask, so I checked last night. It's 85,000 words. I think I maybe need five more to finish it. They looked at each other and they looked at me and said, that's the size the normal books are. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, well, I thought it was a short story, and they said, well, it's not. So they <laughs> took it away and sold it. And that's why private matter is perhaps a little less complex than my other novels, is because I wrote it as a short story.
0: <laughs> yeah. whoever's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> got the microphone that up. Hi. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm really lucky that I live in Dune, so I got to glimpse a little bit of the filming at Castle York, Oh, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. uh Which was fantastic. I, yeah. I live very close, so I saw the horses go past every morning oh, and lovely. got to glimpse uh-huh. the yeah. actors. But um, last night I was on the internet on VisitScotland's website, yeah. and they have a map of Outlander, and you can click on the castle, and you can see all of the wonderful castles oh, in Scotland, apart from Doom Castle. And I was wondering if you could perhaps have a word Ooh. with them tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly will. Yes, I certainly will. I was actually wondering what I was going to talk to them about over dinner. I'll <laughs> we'll make a good opening subject.
0: <laughs> okay, um, gentlemen there, if you can bring that microphone right right here. Yeah. But gentlemen there. Hi, um, I'm a fluent Gaelic speaker, and Gaelic's my first language, and oh, yeah. with the books, there's a great exposure for the language, and thank you for that. So and it's my also pleasure. Uh, Could you sure. just
1: tell us how you came to know the language and Ah. You got the words ah, about so. the Gaelic, yeah. Well, I don't actually know uh, much Gaelic myself. I've got three bits that I can write in people's books, you know, and uh, I can say Merry Christmas, that's about it. But um, I knew from my research that Gaelic was, you know, the tongue of the Highlanders at the time. You know, this was what would be commonly spo- uh, spoken. And therefore, I wanted it to be as realistic and accurate as possible. At the same time, I didn't speak Gaelic, and my time traveler, of course, would not understand it. So what I did was to, you know, um, say that people were speaking in Gaelic, and she'd be deducing what they meant. From from their gestures and body language. And yeah, I would add occasional phrases. I went and got a Gallic English Dictionary, which was not easy to find in Phoenix, Arizona in 1988, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, I had to send to Boston to some place called Steinhoff's Foreign Books for it. But when I called up and said, I want a Gaelic English Dictionary, and they said, oh, Scottish Gaelic or Irish Gaelic? And I said, you're the place, yes, I want Scottish. <laughs> so, so anyway, I used that uh, for Outlander, and uh, then as I say, we went to Scotland uh, while I was writing Dragonfly in Amber, and I got a much bigger and more comprehensive Gaelic English dictionary, was able to include more Gaelic. Uh, And then I got this lovely letter from a gentleman named Ian McKinnon Taylor, and he said, you know, I've been reading your books, they're fabulous, it's so nice to see Scottish history portrayed so accurately and and honestly. He said, "Uh, there is just this one thing I hesitate to mention, I am a native Gaelic speaker from the Isle of Harris, he said, and I think you must be getting your Gaelic from a dictionary. He said, it's not so much that you're using the wrong words, but you're not using them grammatically or idiomatically the way that a native speaker would. And he said, can I offer you my assistance? So I said, where have you been all my life, Mr. Taylor? And, uh, so uh, Ian helped me with the Gallic translations up through Fiery Cross and then he uh, got ill and uh, wasn't able to put in that much effort anymore. And uh, at the moment, uh, my Gaelic is being provided for me by uh, Catherine Ann McPhee, whom some of you will know as a a Gaelic uh, presenter and singer of some note, and her friend Catherine McGregor, who is uh, Canadian and modestly styles herself as a Gaelic learner, meaning that she actually knows what all the little diacritical bits mean and why they're there. (laughs) So between the two of them, I get very sophisticated Gaelic, though I'm told by an Inverness audience that it is with a Bara accent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you L- lady that i um i was on the internet one day and i noticed a couple of people discussing the fact that well all these all these novels and films and dramas like Game of Thrones that have got rape in them well that's realistic but nobody ever has smallpox or childbirth. that's realism too you don't have smallpox you don't have childbirth you don't have broken legs you don't have people with one leg and I thought one two three and they were saying this Diana Gabaldon stuff this is never going to work it won't be realistic and I thought broken legs smallpox check measles check Uh, Childbirth, you know, right, left, and sideways. So Mm -hmm. the way that you managed to, well, the way that you managed to integrate things that other authors just don't touch with a ten-foot barge pole, like you even had a minor character with cerebral palsy Mm -hmm. many, many books back. How... What is it? Is it just the old go slow and pay
1: attention that leads you to keep this all, yes. Well, right. there's some of that about it. Uh, no, what it, uh, what it is is it's a very sound principle, uh, which actually Ron Moore articulated with regard to Battlestar Galactica, so I know he shared it, but I've been doing it for a long time. It's that this is how you make people believe things, is by providing a picture of daily life that is so recognizable to them that they feel as though they sink into it. And you know, you make it interesting. You, we have Claire who has the medical, you know, focus on what's happening so we actually care you know, what she's going to do about this person's broken leg or how she's going to diagnose this condition or whatever. But it is something that the readers relate to completely. They recognize it. They feel familiar. They feel at home. If you make people believe in the, the backdrop of the story, they will follow you when you jump off a cliff and tell them it's time travel. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. A, a lady there and then across oh, to there. Yeah. I'm wondering how you're hearing Roger's voice these days. Oh, am I hearing Roger's voice these days? And oh, I how, know what you mean, yeah. How is it sounding to you? Oh, I, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. You'll find out in the next book. <laughs> 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 she wants to know if he's got his voice back. <laughs> yeah.
0: Just yeah. the lady just next to you there. Just next to you, yeah. Yeah, and okay.
1: You? Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah oh, okay. Hi, hi Diana. Hi. Um, I noticed on the internet, there's a rumor that um, the guy who actually started you off writing the series, uh, Fraser Hines and mm-hmm. the Doctor mm-hmm, Who series, mm-hmm, mm-hmm is rumoured to be coming onto Outlander. First of all, A, is that true? And B, how excited are you if it is true? Yeah. Oh, it's entirely true. I saw him at the table read today and in fact he (laughs) 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 in fact he insisted on taking a a, a photo with uh, with me and Sam Hewitt, so I had Jamie's on either side, <laughs> and, and he was proposing to post it quite soon. So you may find it on the internet tonight, for all I know. But uh, but yes, he does have uh, quite a quite a nice uh, role. At Sam. I mean, it's more than a cameo. He's got an actual you know, role with lines and all that, uh, and uh, they'll do a great job of it. Yeah, but it was lovely to see him again. I uh, first met him in uh, in the flesh in 2009 when I came for that gathering, and he was at that as well. But uh, we've been in contact, you know, over the years, just you know, sporadically. But uh, yeah, lovely guy. So I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, that he's got in. What? What's that? Oh, what's the character? What's the character? Uh, I don't see why you shouldn't know. It's Sir Fletcher uh, Gordon, the uh, the governor of Wentworth Prison. <laughs> Well, now, mind you, Sir Fletcher has no idea what's going on down in the dungeon.
0: A <laughs> lady there, and then take the microphone up to that. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Hello, Diana. Um, I just wondered. Uh, we okay. were talking earlier about the threads running through okay. the latest mm-hmm. book. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, was it a conscious decision on your part to dedicate quite so
1: many segments to Lord John, in an almost independent of Claire and Jamie and other things that were happening? Uh-huh. Uh, it was just uh, the time at which he would naturally have impinged on this story I mean the Battle of Monmouth was between the, the rebels and the British Army uh, his brother is with the British Army and if they were there obviously Lord John would have been fighting with it but uh, it was largely a result of one of my uh, cliffhangers at the end of the last book where you saw Lord John receive a missive just before Jamie showed up and in the shock of his arrival he shoved it in his pocket unread well at that point Lord John is retired from the army he's a diplomat and so forth in this book we discover that his brother has arrived unexpectedly and uh, since his regiment is now about to march and join the British Army, he wants his brother back as his lieutenant colonel and has thus you know, reinstituted him in his usual high-handed way and just sent him a note saying you're back on, back on the job you know, and uh, closing his warrant of commission. So of course Lord John has this in his pocket when he and Jamie Fraser run into a bunch of militiamen, uh, which as he's wearing common clothes and so forth, uh, this makes him a spy. They could hang him on the spot and they very nearly do. Uh, you know, it was just sort of you know, one thing leads to another <laughs> when I had him put the missive in his pocket I didn't know what was on it so. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try
0: and fit in this final three, there's somebody there mm-hmm. and there's somebody over there and there was somebody okay, in the middle there. Uh-huh. Went, yes up there um, Hi, hello. So, yes. Hi. oh sorry four, I'll try and fit four
1: just to say thank you for mentioning Wigtown and we're really looking forward to seeing you down there oh great, thank you so much yeah.
0: thank you for being so quick uh, <laughs> yes lady there
1: Hi Diana. Um, I'm just
0: wondering what was, if you can remember, what was the first character or the first scene you ever thought of when you started to write it?
1: Ah, well, all I had in mind was the vision of a man in a kilt, which is, of course, very powerful <laughs> in image. Yeah. Uh, it was not so much that uh, Fraser Hines' character from Doctor Who inspired uh, the book, or Jamie. It was that I saw him in a kilt, you know, and I said, well, you've got to start somewhere. Why not? That's rather <laughs> fetching. Uh, yeah, I was being interviewed by a German journalist once uh, after I'd won a, a literary prize there, and they interviewed me for a week, every half hour, so I was sort of cross-eyed at the time. But he was carrying on about my books, and he was saying, oh, I've read all your books. They're tremendous. You know, their characters are they're so magic, you know, your narrative is marvelous, and so on, I'm going, yes, yes, go on. And instead, duh, he stopped and said, I wonder, can you tell me, what is the appeal of a man in a kilt? And I was really tired, or I might not have said it, but I looked at him for a minute and I said, well, I suppose it's the idea that you could be up against a wall with him in a minute. Surprisingly, my first scene involved the man in a kilt who had no name at that point. <laughs> yeah. that, that is
0: a perfect place to finish, but I will take, <laughs> I will take these final two questions. So there's somebody there and somebody over there. Yes, you, you first, yeah. You mentioned uh, studying the map of Philadelphia in the 18th mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're writing your new guide to Outlander,
1: I would love to have some maps in it because I visit that area a lot, Uh uh having a son there. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And uh, perhaps you will get Peter to tell you the full joke that ends in, no, it's all in good working order, <laughs> I've heard that one, yes. <laughs> I'm from
0: England, I don't know that. Yes, uh,
1: yes though, yeah, your wife's pa- lipstick is probably a better time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh Yes, there will be maps in the new guide as well as floor plans of Fraser's Ridge and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for that. Sure. Final uh, question, wherever you're uh, on, there I was you
1: are. Has an actor been cast for Roger in the TV series? Well, uh, no, they, they haven't. Thing? Yeah, no, neither for Roger nor Brianna. Not, not small Roger in the... Oh, no, Small Roger's in there. You will, in fact, see him, but not till a later episode. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, uh, the adult Roger has not been cast, nor has Brianna. Uh, They better get a move on if they're going to get into a second season. But I'm told that it probably won't begin filming until sometime in the spring. So they've got a bit of lead time. Yeah.
0: Okay. We are out of time. Before I ask you to thank uh, Diana, can I just uh, say that she's going to be signing copies of the books in the bookshop behind you. Uh, She's, she's, We'll sign your name, but she can't, won't have time to do inscriptions because we we're guessing be there'll sure be quite a long queue. Yeah. Uh, so, but she's going to be doing that in a minute. If, if I didn't get to your question, I'm sorry, uh, but I'm sure she'll be happy to answer that well, question course, individually yeah. in there. Yeah. Thank you for being such a terrific audience. But will you please thank our guests for a fantastic thank you